This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. Well, if you are like me, you may have been walking away from the series a few weeks ago, uh, what would Jesus do? Asking the question, okay, if Jesus came to rescue sinners, to which I am one, then what's next? I think it's a natural progression to look at it, because I think we see throughout Scripture that when Jesus uh, encounters the sinners and the sick, He rescues uh, them. That's what Christ came for. It's what God the Father uh, says that he sent his son for. It's a, a mission to those who are sick. And so Jesus, as he comes to rescue sinners and the sick, to deliver them, the, we, our nat- natural progression would say, well, then what is he delivering them to? Right? Like that's the question, what would Jesus do, is not the right question for us all the time. Look, your mission is not the same as Jesus' mission. You cannot save people. You cannot take the, forgive, uh, the, the sins of the world upon yourself and forgive the world of their sin without condemning and, and then pour out God's Spirit upon people. That's what Jesus came to do. We can't do that. So when we ask what would Jesus do, what are we actually asking? What did Jesus do that I ought to do? Right? So really the question, once we see what Jesus did, because we're looking at him like, with the saints, sinners, and sick, how he encountered those three differently, we then look at it and go, okay, if he rescued sinners, sick, and uh, the saints who would humble themselves, then what did he do next? And it just, man, I can't help it. This is just part of who I am. I had to have another S. Uh, we got the saints, sinners, sick. I had to have another S, and it just works out perfectly for students, okay? So we have the saints, sinners, and sick. What does he rescue them from? Into a relationship like a student. Now, I want to I preface that. I use the word student. I think it's an accurate term when we understand exactly what it meant. It's hard for us to even understand what discipleship is because we don't use that in our current, current uh, vocabulary in America. Uh, we use it in the church primarily. Well, they, uh, the, the world used it everywhere. It's funny. Jesus took a term, Paul took a term, that was outside of the church and inside the church and brought it into his teaching. And now we're taking a term in the church and taking it out to the world. You see what happened there, right? So really what we can do is we can help uh, the world and ourselves to understand what discipleship is when we look at the relationship between a teacher and a student. In uh, uh, Hebrew, the word means literally something like a a learner uh, for a disciple. What it is, is it's not our modern day style of education, which is we uh, send uh, children to school for maybe seven to eight hours. Uh, they have a, or they are homeschooled at our house. They have a different teacher every hour and a half or two. Uh, and then they switch to a different teacher and every grade, they even switch different teachers upon that. And so you have this constant influx of different teachers and your time is changing and shifting and then you go home. That was not what discipleship looked like. It's not what, if we call it students, it's not what that looked like. What that looked like was you adhere to one leader one teacher. You're with them all day and night. You study from them. You learn their words, memorize their words, and do what they do. 
If we want to become students of Jesus Christ, we need to know what he did and who he was and what he has called us to do and who he has made us to be. I want you as students to be able to sit at the feet of Jesus and talk to him, what we call prayer. I want you to memorize this word and meditate on it daily. I want you to look at how that impacts your life and what he has called you to do in your own mission. What has God called you to do? I want you to understand who you are and what God has called you to do. Only then can we really answer the question, what should I do because of what Jesus did? He rescued us up from hell into life, and now what do we do? And the answer comes only at the feet of Jesus. Now, we, we do something in the church <clears throat> that we need to clarify here. Because, y'all, we cannot move forward without pausing first to make sure that we understand this. All right, we spent a couple weeks trying to flesh this out, but I want to give you something real clear that we need to understand first. Jesus models how to call people to follow him and then show them how to find transformation through the power of the Spirit and through the work of the, uh, the Word in their life. Jesus calls them to follow him and then shows them what transformation looks like. As a church, not just our church, but global church, we often flip those two. Change your life, come to church. I've told you this many times before. People are scared to come to church. You, you may have been scared to walk into this church uh, the first time or, or previous time. You may be sitting here right now, sometimes even still fearing walking into the church because of judgment. If you actually showed who you are and talked about what you did, would you be judged? You may be sitting in here right now with guilt on your shoulders. You may be sitting here right now feeling like you can't serve, like you can't be what God's called you to be. Why? Because we talk about transformation before following Jesus instead of following Jesus and then transformation. We've missed that. We've flipped them upside down. That's not how this works. That's not how Jesus called people to make disciples. He came to, to, to Levi or Matthew and he said, follow me. Right now, I understand it takes letting go of things. I understand it takes turning away from things. I understand it takes detaching from things. I understand it takes pursuing after Jesus. I understand the difficulty it takes to turn away from the things of this world and to pursue after Jesus. But what I want to do is I want to talk to you about what it looks like when Jesus rescues us from sin, Satan, and death and moves us along towards heaven. What does it look like to be on that process and that journey here on this earth? You know, the, the difficulty here is this. We want God to work on our timeline and in our strength. That is not how this big term called sanctification works. God does not work on our timeline and our strength. He works on his timeline and his strength in our lives. We have to see this for both ourselves and for those who are around us. A lot of times what we want to do is we want to tell people... Um, you know, or we want to see transformation in people's lives, and we want to speed that up, right? Like, we're looking at their life, like, why aren't you doing this? God, why isn't, aren't they changing? Why can't they change from doing this sin into not doing this sin? What is happening in their life? And we, what do we want to do? We want to work harder to change it, and we want to push God to speed it up. God does not work on our timeline and our strength. He works on his timeline and his strength. And if that's the case, y'all, there may be some times where there's people in this room or outside of this room who are going to take a lifetime journey into overcoming sin. And man, I wish I could tell you that it takes a day. I wish I could tell you it takes two weeks. I wish I could tell you that the moment you come to Christ, all your temptations will be taken away and you'll never sin again. But that is held for eternity in heaven. 
Here on earth, we battle a raging war between sin, Satan, and death and God's people. And as we face that battle, we are not alone. It's not going to be a day. It's not going to be an hour. It's not going to be a minute. There, there will be some. I mean, there's going to be some in this room that you're going to go, man, I, I believed in Jesus, and immediately this temptation was taken away from me. And, and, and man, amen, and I'm thankful for what God did in that moment. But that's not the same story for every single person. And sometimes we have to go through these things to learn. Sometimes we go through this process because it strengthens us. Sometimes we go through this process because we're not yielding over to God certain things. We go through difficult journeys because we're holding things back. We go through these difficult journeys and pains. But it's not on our timeline and it's not on our strength. God alone is the one who can work this out. And if you can extend this to others and yourself, it'll help you along in the process. Because you may be sitting here like, man, I, could, I can never allow myself the grace to move forward. That is a, a debilitating place to be in. You, you, you feel like you can't serve. You feel like you can't talk about what, who you are and what you do. You feel like you can't even... People, like make, make a sound in church. Why, why could you raise your hands? Why could you sing? Why could you pray? Because, because you know what's going on in, in your life. How could you ever serve God with what, man, guys, God did not perfect Peter the moment he gave up fishing to follow Jesus. The man denied Jesus three times after he'd seen Jesus transfigure calm the storm, give the blind sight, heal the paralytic, and Peter still denied Jesus three times. And I don't hate on Peter for it because I am Peter. Brothers and sisters, we must extend the same grace towards those around us that we extend towards ourselves. That God is working on us to create us into the image of God. Or the better way to say it is to recreate us into the image of God. So pause for a moment and ask yourself this. Do you want everyone, like every single person, to come to Christ and his church? That's a hard question. Do you want every single person to come to Christ and to his church? No matter what their background, history, uh, uh, sin devices are currently. uh, um, You know, Jesus, I think about Jesus because I'm... I want to make sure that this is biblically accurate. I think about Jesus, where the, where the people gathered to worship God, where the people gathered to study his word, and where the people gathered uh, in agreement upon their faith was called the synagogue. It literally means the gathering place, synagogue. It's the gathering place of God's people. Today, the gathering place of God's people, we often call a church. It's just, it's where the church, the people gather in a building. The synagogue was the place where the people of God would gather. When Jesus found the sick and the sinners in the synagogue, he healed them and he forgave them. He didn't go, what are you doing in the synagogue? In fact, one of the greatest accusations against Jesus, and Paul for that matter, was that they allowed people who were Gentiles to be in the synagogue. Why? Because the church was the epicenter of healing for the people of God. It was the place where they were going to find Christ and his healing and his forgiveness in the world. It was at least going to be the one place in the world where his, his truth would be preached, his miracles would be performed, his forgiveness would be administered. All these things would take place. Is this church a place where you'd like to see the sick and the sinners? 
if it's not, you should leave. Because you are a sick person dying in a sinner, just like me. Don't actually leave. Instead, I hope that you will come as you are, but not stay that way. It's something that we say a lot around here. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. You, look, in our world today, you, you, can, you can about say anything that needs to change. Like, man, you can talk about greater wealth, greater business adventures, greater leadership style. Uh, you want to get uh, um, you, maybe uh, medical uh, emergencies. What do you do with a medical emergency? You go to the hospital. You find a doctor. They tell you what to do. You typically do it sometimes, and you find a little bit better health, right? That's like, that's how the world works. Let me tell you something today. You tell somebody how to change their life, you're going to get canceled. That's what happens in our world today. Look, we need to understand the world that we live in before we can minister into it. Jesus understood his world. He understood the context, and he ministered within it. You need to understand this. If you start talking to people about how they can change or transform their lives, you're going to get canceled, and that doesn't mean that we stop. It's like a person going to the hospital who's having a heart attack and the doctor looking at them and saying, um, I don't think I can help you because I'm afraid, of what, I'm afraid you might not like me. The church is the, We're not worried about people liking us. We're worried about dead and dying people finding a Savior who can give them life. In, in the same way, imagine this. Imagine somebody goes to the doctor they're having a heart attack, and the doctor says, here's what you can do. Here's how we can heal you. We're going to give you surgery and some medicine. It's going to take care of you. You're going to be fine. And they're like, nah, nah, nah. I don't want it. I'm good. I'm fine. Man, come on. We let medical doctors tell us what to do all the time about our physical well-being. But we won't let anybody into the discussion about our character, about our holiness, about who we are as a person. Or, or, or we're going to get canceled. We're going to get shut down. Or being offensive. Look, I understand Jesus came. He rescued, but he rescued you something. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. He rescued you for something. Come into the ER as you are, find healing. Come into the church as you are and find healing. Jesus has something for you, greater than you ever imagined in your life. Why? Because he's the creator God. Look, in Genesis 1, it tells us this truth. God looked at his creation and he said, very good. The, the image of God had been given to his people, and he says this, it's very good. If you want to know what is very good, you've got to go back to the creator to find out what is very good. That doesn't mean that you can't find good things in this world. I mean, uh, if, if you've got a garden right now, you may start, be starting to get some, uh, some crop, right? Uh, my wife and I, we plant a garden, and uh, we have squash like crazy right now. And we love squash. Like, we got too much of it if you want some. Uh, it's exciting. We also have banana peppers, and I told her I don't know why we plant banana peppers because we don't eat them, but they grow great, so it's beautiful, right? You'd like some banana peppers. We have those for you, too. Anyways, you can enjoy God's good creation. Anybody can enjoy this. You can taste a blueberry and know that it tastes awesome. Strawberries, like fresh strawberries, juicy, red, sweet strawberries. They're good. They taste good. 
But if you want to know what's very good, if you want to know what God created for you, you got to go back to the creator. Anybody in the world can taste good things in God's creation, can see good things in God's creation, can feel good things in God's creation. In fact, you can even find self-help books or do things to make yourself feel better by going to the gym, by eating healthier, and by getting a healthier body, you're going to have more energy and feel like you can do more. And that's great. Look, that's a, you get to touch, you get to tap into a little bit of what God has for you. But if you want to find a full measure of what God has for you, that very good, you're going to have to go back to the Creator. In fact, I, w- I would say, you know, Jesus there at the beginning of the creation, Jesus was the creator, still is the creator, but he's got kind of this little bit, a little bit different function now. He's not creating, he's recreating. That doesn't mean he can't still create things. I'm just saying what he's doing with you is he's recreating you into what? Back into the image of God. You want to find what is very good in this world? You're not going to find it in a self-help book or even in the wonderful good fruits and vegetables of this earth or in the awesome movies that you may like, that you think are super cool, or whatever else it is. Beautiful music that can play in your ears. The sights of this world, they're all amazing. But if you want to know what it means to be very good again, you got to find the one who's recreating you from very good to fallen to very good. This is difficult. It's really difficult for humans to do this. It's because we have this thing called pride and insecurity. You see, pride is a false view of how good we are. Insecurity is a false view of how bad we are. And humility is an accurate view of who we are. It's so critical that we understand this because at the foot of Jesus, we are not coming to him going, look, I'm so good, God, you're going to have to accept me into heaven. Look at everything I've done. I am so good. Man, you're never going to match up. At the feet of Jesus, we don't come before him and go, God, I'm, I am so bad, I'm worthless, you, you would never want me. Don't take me, I'm nothing. Man, we got to get out of that. Look, look here, you, let, me, let me tell you something. You are worth enough for the Savior of the world to die for you. It's like spitting in his face to tell him, I'm not worth anything. I'm not. He's like, you're worth everything. How much are you worth? God in the flesh dying for you. That's your worth. We come before Jesus not saying, I am worthless, I have nothing, and I'm, 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 God, you would never want me. We come before Jesus saying, I don't understand why you want me, but you do, and I understand how loved I am. It is a completely different understanding of who you are. You're worth so much to God the Father that he would give his son for you. But it's an accurate understanding of this. God loves you enough to give of his son for you, but I need him like crazy. I need him. Humility understands how much we need God, but doesn't put us in a place where we feel like we have to wallow in our own self-pity because of how worthless we are. Insecurity will rob you of clinging to Jesus, and pride will rob you of clinging to Jesus. Humility will put you in a place where you go, God, I don't know why you think I'm worth so much, but you do. And because of it, I'm going to cling to you. I don't know why you want to give me strength. I don't know why you want to forgive me, but God, you do. And because you do, I need it. That's okay, man. That sounds like David. But the opposite of pride is not insecurity. Insecurity. 
Uh, sorry, the opposite of pride is not humility, it's insecurity. And if you want to pursue after Jesus, find a humility that says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I love when Peter says to Jesus, get away from me for I'm a simple man. <laughs> Can you imagine if Jesus just walked away? What does he do instead? Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. I can't. Like, you at the feet of Jesus telling Jesus, I'm worthless, get away from me. And Jesus going, stand up, you're my son. You are my daughter. Philippians 3.21 says, He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. In James 1, 9 through 10, it says, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. When God finds us humble, he exalts us. When God finds us prideful, he humbles us. If you want to come to the feet of Jesus, come humble, clinging to Jesus, understanding how much he loves you and the grace he has extended to you, not in insecurity and in pride, but recognizing how good God's grace is. You see, the, the, thing, the, the important thing here is humility is the beginning of faith. It's hard. It is hard for us to have faith in Jesus without first humbling ourselves or being humbled by Christ. It's hard to have faith in Jesus when you say, man, I'm, I'm good. I've got everything under control. I don't need Jesus. That's pride, right? It's hard to have faith in, in, in somebody else saving you when you think you've saved yourself. Humility is almost the beginning of faith. So we come to Jesus in faith, in humility. So when we look at what God is doing in us, not just what God did through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, but what is He doing now in us? I can't help but look at Romans 8. Man, I remember my PhD professor in, in uh, uh, um, California, I remember when he told me, he was studying through Romans 8, and he looked at me and he was like, Matt, God is restoring all of creation. And I'm like, like Romans 8, you look at it and you can like breeze by it and kind of move through this without like digging into it. But, but, but just hear this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor, labor pains until now. For what? For God to restore it. For God to redeem it. For God to take what was very good then became fallen to very good. And for God to take what was good, God's creation, from fallen to good again. God is restoring what has fallen. All of creation longs for what you creation, uh, what you long for. Does that like, Rachel said it in her prayer, in her conversation. Like together we cry out this as one. Think about this. All together we are longing for God's recreation. If you're a believer in Christ and you're in this room, all of us are longing for the same thing. That should be so like uniting and comforting that every person in this room is all needing the same thing. It's not like you can go up to somebody and be like, man, I'm struggling with this temptation. And they'd be like, oh, really? I'm perfect. Sorry, man. You should probably pray. Like, no, we are all on the same pursuit of Jesus praying to God that he would heal us. That he would restore us together, one body, united in faith, saying, God, I, I need you. It's, it's, I mean, it's remarkable thinking about Peter at the feet of Jesus. Get away from me, for I'm a sinful man. He lifts him up. 
Next time you see Peter falling down at the feet of Jesus, what is he doing? Sinking in the water. And what does Jesus do again? Lifts him up. Every single one of us in here are going to go through seasons where we are sinking in the water. And I'm not trying to tell you that you are Peter in that story, because not each one of us are biblical characters in every single story. You're not David, you're not Peter, you're not Saul, you're not Paul, you're not any of these people. You are who you are. But God has been consistently faithful. When he finds people sinking in the water because of doubting faith or because of struggling in their life, he just consistently lifts people up. And so you may be sitting in this room thinking, man, like I am alone. No, you're not. Every single one of us are on the journey from fallen and destiny to hell to destiny in heaven. We're all on that journey. I was, I was headed towards hell. And but, but by the grace of God, I am headed towards heaven. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. This is a journey. You are on the journey. But I want you to hear something real clear. This journey is to a restoration into the image of God. There's, <clears throat> there was an issue in the church, not, not, our, not our church. There's been an issue in theology in the church that at times has said something like this. Uh, well, on earth, we will face sin and we will face temptation, but we will uh, we'll never overcome those things. We just have to wait till heaven. Like there's this idea that like if you raise your hand and pray a prayer and then you just go away, everything's good because one day you'll be in heaven and all those sins and temptations then will be no more. There'll be no tears and all that stuff. Like it's just gone. And you're like, okay, awesome. Then I'm going to go ahead and, and wait for that. And like people do whatever they want with the rest of their life. Because of this idea that the only time we'll ever find freedom and forgiveness is in heaven. Man, that is a complete misunderstanding of what God is doing in creation. Let me, let me show you something. Jesus is the one who created the Trinity at work. Colossians 1, 15 through 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the invisible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus was there at creation creating. The same Jesus who is creating is recreating. 2 Corinthians three eighteen. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being, here's the word, transformed into the same image from glory to glory. To what image? The Imago Dei, the image of God. You are being recreated, transformed into the image of God. And that's not talking about just future. Philippians 3.21, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. That is a future thing. He will transform. But I want you to see Ephesians 4.20-24 when he talks about the church in Ephesus and the difference between the church in Ephesus and the world. He says this, But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. 
God is recreating you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It's all throughout scripture. Man, may we not think that God is finished with us. May we not think, ever believe that we are in perfection now, but may we never think that God is not still working in us. I'm telling you, man, if you are sitting here today and you're like, I, I struggle with anger. I cannot get my anger under control. God's not finished. Maybe you're in here today and you're like, man, I, I don't think I can fight any longer for my marriage. Or maybe you think, I, I can't fight any longer for my kid. I, 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 I can't do it anymore. I'm, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm fed up. Brothers and sisters, we're not working on your timeline or your strength. We're working on God's timeline and God's strength to overcome the temptations of your heart. Don't give up. I'm not telling you you're going to be perfect on earth, but that doesn't mean that God might overcome that temptation and sin in this world. In this world. Imagine a day. Don't let your mind forget this. There could be a day when you are free from temptation of that sin. Not all sin, not perfect, not completely out of the water until heaven, until Jesus comes back. But don't let yourself forget the hope of Jesus. That in this life, he's not done with you. He's not done with you. I thank God that he wasn't done with me. And I know I am still on the journey. I'm not going to stand before you and act like I'm not, and I hope I never have. But I know who I am today is not who I was yesterday and 10 years ago. So, students of Jesus... At the feet of Jesus, humble, clinging to his Savior. May we not be crippled by the idea that we only experience transformation in heaven. That is not true. In Jesus' sermon, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to his students and followers. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He says this, You are the salt of the earth. Look, if God's finished with you and God does not work in your life and he found you as a sinner and rescued you and then just left you, you are not salt. I thank God that he didn't leave me how I was. I would not be salt. Much less later on, it says you are the light of the world. I would not have been a light of the world. When I say run in the midst of darkness and light it up, if you're running into the midst of darkness, dark, you're not going to light it up. Jesus ain't done with you. He's making you into the salt of the earth. He's making you into the light of the world. You are his church. He died for you. You are his bride. He loves you. You are his people, sons and daughters, who he is restoring into very good. The image of God. The salt of the earth. The light of the world. He's not finished. If this is true, if this is true, then don't stop fighting. Sin, Satan, and death. Because he's not 
finished. I, I think about the recreator God, Jesus Christ. If he's recreating us from fallen into perfection, from who we were into who God has for us, if we can come in here as we are, but not stay that way because of his strength and timeline, and if God is at work in our lives, then maybe one day I will be the salt of this earth and the light of the world through the strength and power of Jesus Christ. Not by my own. Maybe this church will be the light of the world. Maybe people will look it up, up at us, as it says, like a city on a hill. And go, man, Westminster, Maryland is different because of Westminster Baptist. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus is doing in us. You know, I, it, the, the, probably the most difficult part about this Sermon on the Mount and any of this discussion is uh, an influx of bad theology related to this the last verse and um, this really this uh, part of what Jesus is saying. In verse 20, it says, um, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of God. This in Greek is an aorist active subjunctive with an if-then statement. What that means is this. It means it's one of the most strong ways to say an if-then. In, in other words, it would be like Jesus saying, if you're going to live like this, this is going to be the result. But if you live like this, this will be the result. Every statement Jesus lists in this passage is a true statement Jesus is giving them. When we get to the end, he doesn't shift. In fact, that word, uh, that phrase, for I tell you, in Greek, it's used, I think, four times in the gospel. And every time it's used, it's set up as a, a, as a true statement from Jesus. He's telling his disciples a true statement. So here it is, a true statement said strongly about an if-then situation. It says, unless, which is like a negated if, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, uh, scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of God. Now we can look at that a couple different ways. I need to be good. I need to be better. I need to work harder. I need to gain more righteousness so that I am actually literally better than the scribes and Pharisees. Or we can come to it knowing what Jesus has taught us and knowing this truth. I am not righteous enough. I'm not, but I'm clinging to the one who is. You've heard me say this before. Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, died the death I should have died, and raised from the dead so that I can raise from the dead too. When I say he lived the life I couldn't live, here's what I mean. He won righteousness when I couldn't. He gained righteousness. He proved righteousness. He showed righteousness that I could never have. And when he won that for me on the cross, that complete faithfulness to the very end, victory over sin, Satan, and death, he won in the world's eyes what it looks like to be faithful to the point of death. And when he did that, sending his spirit into my heart, crying out, Abba, Father, now I have the faithfulness and the righteousness of Christ in me. And when God sees me, he sees not my faithfulness and not my righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. So look, God is recreating you. He is restoring you back into the image of God. And when you fail, you look like Jesus. That's so good. Because I fail. When I fail, I still look holy. How awesome is that? It's like you're playing sports and you're like, 
tripping and missing a soccer ball to kick in the goal and everybody laughing at you because you messed up. In life, it's not like that for us as Christians. When we mess up, we still get seen as perfect. That's grace and mercy, unimaginable. I don't understand it, but I cling to it. Even when we fail. See, your righteousness must surpass that of even the Pharisees. What that means is, literally, your righteousness already surpasses that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because you have Christ's righteousness in you, but it also doesn't set us, uh, uh, get us off the hook for this too. Christ is actually making you righteous. He's actually working in your life to build righteousness into your life. Not by your strength and timeline, but by his strength and timeline, he's still making you righteous. Like, if you're sitting here today, like, my, my anger uh, is getting a hold of me, my, uh, my attitude towards other people, my gossip, my slander, uh, uh, my lust, my, my uh, uh, anything, selfishness, it's just how you treat people, whatever it is. Maybe sitting here like, man, it's just getting all a hold of me. Look, look, God sees you as he saw his son on the cross, faithful. And he's making you into the image of his son on the cross, faithful. It's like this. I'm going to end with this. For the rest of the sermon, Jesus shows us how we're going to be more righteous than the Pharisees and Sadducees. Not by our own strength. Again, don't hear me wrong. Not by our own strength, but he's actually going to show you that. Check this out. He says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees say they don't murder, but they have anger in their heart. Jesus is transforming your desires, and he's transforming your heart, which is going to make in you a righteousness and a faithfulness that is greater than just actions and check marks and looking at your list, task list, and saying, I did this, I did this, I did this. I didn't do that because I'm not a sinner like them. Instead of looking at that, we're looking at it like this. God, change in me my heart. He's changing the desire. He says, uh, good, you, did, you haven't committed adultery, but you lust. Jesus is looking not at just the actions, but at the heart. What is going on in the heart? And he's changing and transforming us daily so that we will be seen as righteous in his Father's eyes, not just uh, because of what he did, but because of who we have become. He is creating you into the image of God. And there is going to be a day where you are welcome into heaven. Well, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. And there's going to be truth to that. And I'm not going to act like there isn't because then it'd be taking away the, the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because one day God's going to look at you and say, well done, and you actually did a good job because the Spirit is in you. Don't miss that. God's working in you. We're not going to stop at Jesus came to rescue you because he rescued you for a reason. He rescued you for a reason. As the band comes, I'll tell you this, uh, Peter, at the knee, falling at the feet of Jesus. Get away from me, for I'm a sinful man. Um, Peter sinking in the water. Peter denying Jesus three times. And then Peter preaching the gospel. Right now, you may, I'm telling you, man, you may think you are in front of Jesus. Get away from me, for I'm a sinful man. And you know what he's going to do? Just draw closer. It's unbelievable. He's not going to run away from you. Not that humility. Not that clinging. Not that faith. He's just going to draw closer.
when you doubt and you're sinking in the water, he tends to just pick you up. When you deny three times, he tends to just love you, love you, love you, and ask you if you love him. Man, he's walking with Peter along the water, showing a grace and a mercy that Peter didn't deserve. You may feel like you don't deserve it right now, but he's walking with you, and he will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. He's walking with you. So no matter where you are right now, God is taking you from where you are to where he has for you. Thank you for coming into this church. But I don't hate you enough to tell you, stay the way you are. I love you enough to tell you that God has something very good for you. And I hope that you will love the person to your right and your left enough to tell them, God has something for you. And he's not finished with you. And if you've been running... Come back. If you've been sinking, stick out your hand. He's never too far. Let me pray for you. Father, we all, like Peter, need you. We all, like the disciples, are not more righteous than the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so we cling to you. We all, like the Ephesians, are asking you, just like Romans 8, transform our hearts, transform our minds, transform our actions. Change us, God. Recreate us into what you called very good. Make me new. transform this church God we need you and God we thank you I thank you God for the insane amount of love and grace and mercy that you've poured out upon us I thank you for the long journeys of sanctification and I thank you for the short journeys I thank you for the person in this room who came despite their anger. I thank you for the for the men and women that came in this room despite their lust. I thank you for the people who came into this room despite their gossip. I thank you, God, that you've not given up on us. Even when we want to give up on ourselves. I thank you, God, that you have not given up on our children even when we want to. I thank you, God, that you have not given up on our coworkers even when we want to. Our parents, our siblings, we're not going to give up. Because you have not given up, God. Raise up your church as warriors, a spiritual battle that we face against sin, Satan, and death. Raise up your church, God. We are your people. 
We love you and praise in your son's name. Amen. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.